0: Listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen.
1: Welcome to episode 129 of Belaboured. In this episode, we talk to Ronan Burton Shaw of Jacobin Magazine about what the results of the UK election mean and how Labour can move forward. But first, the news. President Trump was elected on a platform of ripping up free trade deals, supposedly to keep American jobs at home and punish corporations for abandoning U.S. workers. So far, though, he's finding that to be a tougher task than expected. Companies and governments of Canada and Mexico have resisted his push to dramatically change the rules that cover trans trade across North America. But his promise to reopen NAFTA negotiations, which has also included a public comment period, has offered a rare platform for many civil society groups to voice their own ideas about what fair trade should really mean in the 21st century. So, various community and labor organizations are taking the opportunity to voice alternative visions for a trade system that works for working people. And that turns out to be quite a bit different from the vision that... Trump has advanced, which is fundamentally a pro-business agenda that serves capital on all sides of the border. So rather than pit workers and progressive movements against each other, labor unions, environmentalists, and consumer rights advocates are coming together to figure out how people can work across borders against corporate power. Unlike Trump's rhetoric about taking jobs back from workers abroad, unions and labor advocates are actually less focused on merely protecting jobs for Americans and more interested in uplifting working conditions for all workers around the world so that corporations no longer have the incentive, say, to ship factories to Mexico or to outsource their production to China, for that matter. Areas that are poorer, where labor is cheaper, and where regulation and lower workplace standards are pervasive. Fair trade advocates also want to see a system of trade that is less controlled by corporations in general and more transparent for regulators and civil society. Currently, many of the trade rules that determine market access under NAFTA, as well as corporate regulatory regimes, are enforced through opaque extranational judicial systems known as investor state dispute settlement tribunals. Replacing these tribunals with a more open judicial process, preferably one that is done with the same transparency as a normal court of law, would empower civil society and labor to check multinationals' efforts to subvert domestic laws. And finally, it's not just about closing America off from global markets, but ensuring that the inevitable tide of globalization does not oppress people or give corporations outsized power to shape our politics and democratic institutions or to undermine essential public protections. Instead of handing corporations the keys to global policymaking, trade rules can be written in a way that commits them to, say, fair pricing for medicines and staple food crops, and rules that punish polluting corporations and help control climate change. The point is not that trade is bad, but that undemocratic corporate governance is hurting the communities most impacted by trade everywhere. So far, Trump has been butting heads with trade ministers in Canada and Mexico that want to protect their companies and market shares. But that's all happening on the side of business. If workers, environmentalists, consumer rights advocates can cross borders and form a united front, and if NAFTA is reopened in a really democratic sense, we can finally get a seat at the table that empowers everyone on all sides of the border, except for the multinationals who have always rigged the game against us. Here's Lori Wallach speaking at a recent media conference on the effort to rewrite NAFTA from the grassroots.
2: The best scenario is actually to replace NAFTA where you get rid of the stuff you don't want and you actually put into place the things that would actually make for a better situation for people in all three countries. Now, given all the problems I've described about the corporate influence, the secrecy, We may well find ourselves in a situation where we want no NAFTA because what we end up with is worse or not any better. But we should push for that thing, which is our vision of what actually – we're not the isolationists. We're not the people who say, screw the other countries. We're the people who say there should be global rules to contain corporate power. Corporations should not be containing government power through investor state. Rather, international agreements should make sure there are rules in a global economy that are a global floor of decency. Just like nationally, we have minimum standards for the environment, for food safety, for wages. We now have global corporations and a global economy and no floor. So if, and there are reasons why, even though it seems counterintuitive, if there is an opportunity to try and push forward our vision of how you actually could use international rules to bring up standards let us make that demand let us contrast politically what a good agreement that really would work for working people looks like and measure what the trump administration gets and if it doesn't add up then we go all out to make sure it doesn't get enacted and if it doesn't add up and it isn't something we want then we start pushing to get rid of the old NAFTA which by the way is what President Trump said he would do if he couldn't make a deal that's much better for working people.
0: After one false start in the House, the Republicans are pushing forward with their version of quote, health care reform, and you should picture that with the biggest air quotes I can possibly make. As we discussed a few weeks ago, the House of Representatives passed its version of the quote, American Health Care Act. A bill that would take away health insurance from 24 million people, revoke the expansion of Medicaid, turning it into a block grant, remove individual health insurance subsidies, allow insurers to cap maximum coverage once again, and on and on and on. Notably, the bill would even affect those with employer-provided insurance, allowing for caps on that too. It's a bill so bad that after whipping votes for it and celebrating its passage through the House in a Rose Garden ceremony... Donald Trump himself has apparently decided that it is, quote, mean, and told the Senate to make it, quote, more generous. We have no idea what they're doing on that front at the moment, though, because their bill is being written behind closed doors, and Democrats have apparently been holding off on going nuclear on them, whatever that would mean, because they wanted to get bipartisan sanctions on Russia. Right. Major newspapers have mostly not been reporting on healthcare, possibly because there isn't much to report, I suppose. But activist groups are urging their members to act, to call the Senate, to hold sit-ins and die-ins, to get in the way as much as possible. The next few weeks are crucial. On the upside, in both California and New York, there are single-payer bills on the move. California State Senate passed their single-payer bill, though it is still a long way from passage. But let's not forget that if this monstrosity gets passed through Congress, it will have a real body count. By many
1: measures, women have managed to advance themselves through higher education by leaps and bounds over the past half century. In some ways, they've surpassed men, since more women proportionately are attending college and getting degrees these days. But there's one important way that women are falling behind in higher education, and that goes back to the economic gender inequality that we see throughout the rest of society. A new study by the American Association of University Women shows that women carry more of the student debt load than men, a total of about two-thirds of the total 1.3 trillion plus pile of student debt weighing down college students and graduates today. On top of carrying two-thirds of the debt, women tend to earn significantly less than their male peers once they enter the workforce, so not only do they graduate owing more, but they struggle harder to earn enough to pay all that back they tend to carry the debt burden for longer and fall further and further behind in the rest of their careers as a result. This undermines their overall economic security and can affect their entire working lives all the way through to retirement. This burden impacts women's lives and family work-life decisions in the long and short term. According to the study, women with college degrees working full-time make 26% less than their male peers which leaves women with less income on average to devote to debt repayment. Due to student loan debt burdens, women are then more likely than men to experience financial difficulties covering their basic needs. 34% of all women, 42% of Latino women, and 57% of black women who were repaying student loans said they were unable to meet essential expenses within the past year. It's both insulting and tragic that women who have jumped through all the hoops, who've done the right thing, who have studied hard all their lives, end up getting punished for seeking a higher education. When women are saddled with more debt and they earn less coming out of college, that makes college all the less worth it. It's sad that in an age when education is seen as the great equalizer, women end up paying more for it for the rest of their lives. Currently, many people across the country are calling for tuition-free college. That's not just an issue of opening access to higher education and improving the long-term economic outlook for more young people overall. It's also a way of getting at gender inequality, and it's a way of equalizing opportunity in a real way between men and women so that between genders, people can start life really on the right foot and advance their intellectual and economic outlooks on a level playing
2: field.
0: Today's guest has come on our show before to report on the takeover of the Labour Party in Britain by its left wing under party leader Jeremy Corbyn. This week, he is joining us to celebrate the startling success of that party in last week's general election, shattering the majority of the Tories who called the election in the first place because they thought they could wipe the floor with Corbyn. Backed by much of the labor movement and crucially by newly politicized young people, though, labor got 40% of the overall vote and by one report would have needed just over 2,000 more votes in certain places to make Corbyn prime minister. Ronan Burtonshaw joins us. He is Jacobin's Europe editor and a longtime observer and supporter of the corbin phenomenon so theresa may called the snap election thinking that she was going to stomp the labor party into the ground forever and instead uh lost some seats that were considered incredibly safe to uh jeremy Corbyn and labor what the hell just happened
3: One of the greatest polling turnarounds in modern political history, to put it into context, uh, six weeks out from the election, Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party were 24 points behind in the YouGov polls. The YouGov polls, in the end, were one of the ones that was closest to the final result. Uh, The final result was that Theresa May's Tories got about 43% of the popular vote and Corbyn's Labour Party got 40%. That is the biggest swing to a political party since uh, Clement Attlee's Labour Party in the 40s. It means Corbyn got the highest share of the popular vote with the exception of the Blair landslide uh, of any leader going back to the 1960s uh, and has really put a kind of new lease of life into the Labour Party and left-wing politics in Britain uh, and did it under a clear, uh, unambiguous socialist uh, programme with left-wing figures leading the party And despite the incredible hostility of not only the right-wing factions of his own party, but the British media, who are unusually right-wing for European terms with this kind of rabid tabloid media, uh, but also with the hostility of most of the main organs of the kind of centers and center-left media. For example, The Guardian, who were very, very hostile to Corbyn's uh, leadership, to his project of democratic socialist politics uh, in in Britain from the beginning. Uh, So it was an incredible political result. Honestly, we've seen in Europe quite a lot of left-wing success stories of varying degrees in recent years. Obviously, there was the discussion of the Mélenchon comeback, which has stalled somewhat in France, the Podemos Mm. experience in Spain, Syriza in Greece. But this is the most extraordinary of, of recent times, um, just the scale of the challenges facing Corbyn uh, and his, uh, his project uh, within the Labour Party, the scale of the opposition and to come out with 40 percent of the popular vote uh, is just amazing.
1: Generally speaking, um, the main headlines coming out of the U.K. here in the U.S. were essentially you know, anticipating a sweep for the Conservatives, and then all of a sudden it was seen as a big surprise that Labour overperformed and the Conservatives underperformed. Um, that's obviously a pretty simplistic reading of it, but how exactly do these results confound expectations in terms of the appeal of, of either party um, towards different constituencies and, and what might have misled people, um, you know, either for the pollsters to be wrong or, or for uh, the electorate to suddenly turn around?
3: Well, if you would listen to most, and by most I mean like 90% of the pundits in the mainstream press in Britain, you would have heard that Jeremy Corbyn could not do well in an election because he was extreme. He was on the political fringes. That people would not vote for Redistribution. So, for instance, his manifesto, uh, which was one of the things that changed the the election, is a very clear but quite radical social democratic program which talks about uh, renationalizing mail, rail, energy companies uh, in addition to water services, talks about redistributing wealth from the top 5% and from corporations to fund social programs for the 95%, free tuition fees, free childcare for for children over the age of two, uh, renationalizing and kicking out the privateers from the National Health Service. Uh, But also the other thing that made him radical was the fact that he was a very strong defender of peace as a foreign policy, somebody who had consistently rejected uh, Western interventions and wars uh, in the Middle East, was a very prominent opponent of the uh, Iraq war. uh, But, you know, was a, was a prominent opponent of, of most Western wars of the last uh, three and four decades. Somebody who gave his support to um, groups very prominently, for instance, the um, anti-apartheid campaign in, in South Africa at the time when the British government uh, were calling the ANC terrorists. Um, so he was somebody who centrist pundits would have said was unelectable in the British context. Uh, and he proved them wrong. He proved them wrong. His score would have gotten the Labour Party elected. Would have had him as Prime Minister under either of the two previous elections. He way, way exceeded the uh, the voting totals of David Cameron, uh, who obviously came through twice as Prime Minister. Yeah. But I think you know what we can talk about in terms of how the the election shaped up. What people expected to happen was that in the post-Brexit landscape with UKIP declining because their main raison d'etre had been dealt with, with Britain voting to leave the uh, the European Union, uh, that UKIP voters would all flock over to the Tories. The Tories would be seen as a safe pair of hands to deal with Brexit and that they would, under Theresa May as a prime minister, give a strong and stable government. This was a phrase that was repeated by the Tories over and over and over again. And that they would be able to give people a sense of security uh, in this kind of difficult and uh, tumultuous political landscape. What actually happened is that uh, Theresa May's government uh, was exposed, uh, that this narrative of their strength and stability uh, and safeness uh, as a a governing party uh, was a myth that actually they were uh, quite a narrow uh, constituency, that's who they represented. Their manifesto, when it came out, had very, very prominent blunders, like, for instance, a social care policy that implied they were going to make elderly people uh, sell their houses in order to pay for care. Um, they were defending the the record of uh, of cuts which they had brought in since uh, since 2010 uh, and promising really a further uh, distribution of redistribution of wealth from ordinary people to the uh, to the elite they were pursuing a hard brexit which was as jeremy corbyn would say proposing to turn britain into a bargain basement economy with low corporation tax low regulations low workplace rights and that did not actually uh, stand up well under the scrutiny uh, of an election campaign, because it doesn't represent the majority of people and their interests. And what we did, what we ended up seeing is that the Brexit vote, which was, you know, widely interpreted as simply some kind of nationalist, xenophobic uh, vote, has layers to it. An awful lot of it was people who were deeply disenchanted with the political status quo and the establishment. And Really unexpected levels of of uh, UKIP former UKIP supporters ended up uh, going to back Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party, um, and that in key seats in the in the North uh, managed to to hold the Labour Party. And then another thing happened, which is Jeremy Corbyn's politics of hope—the idea that the future can actually get better than the past, that we can redistribute wealth from the tiny elite which runs society to the majority and improve uh, people's living standards resonated. It resonated with people, uh, young people in extraordinary numbers who came out to vote and supported uh, the Labour Party in historically high numbers. And it also resonated with middle-aged people who had taken on the you know, responsibilities of having a house and the difficulties of, uh, of having a job with you know, lowering uh, workplace standards and stagnant wages and so on in the British economy today. And we're no longer willing to simply accept that the Tories were as good as it could get and decided no on the day actually that they were going to come out and vote for the Labour Party and and have hope that things could get better rather than be constantly voting out of a fear um, of what might happen if they if they didn't uh, accept the mainstream media's narrative.
1: And another thing that seemed to surprise pundits and pollsters uh, was that um, the Brexit question was not as huge a factor at the forefront of voters' minds as maybe some had anticipated. You know, maybe the media played up Brexit as a factor um, in a way that wasn't really factoring into the day-to-day sort of bread and butter calculations of the average voter. So to what extent was was Brexit kind of a non-issue or or maybe just subsumed by these, you know, just more localized economic grievances that you were just talking about?
3: Well, Corbyn's Labour Party managed very well to change uh, the nature of the debate of the election. Yes, it was scripted. Um, This is why Theresa May called it, she called it on the basis of Brexit, that this is going to be an election that would deliver her a majority that was big enough to negotiate with confidence a hard Brexit uh, for for Britain. But Jeremy Corbyn changed that narrative. And this is the important thing, I think, of vindication of fighting left-wing politics as opposed to this kind of um, centrist politics that says you always have to triangulate. If a centrist leader of the Labour Party had gone into this election, we could have expected that they would try to uh, pose the whole question as who would be better to uh, conduct the Brexit negotiations, that they would have gone in making huge concessions over uh, immigration, uh, that they would have decided that Brexit was the only topic of debate, and so there's no point really in putting forward a radical social programme, and they would have ended up not motivating huge numbers of people who were disenchanted at their living standards. Uh, And then, of course, when the terrible terrorist attacks occurred, rather than coming forward and saying what Jeremy Corbyn did, which was brave and which was right, which is that our foreign policy is a contributing factor in uh, the rise of terrorism, and particularly of groups like Islamic State, um, they would have turned to a kind of authoritarian security narrative, which would have suited the Tories down to the ground. The truth is, you change the narrative in campaigns by being clear about what you stand for and fighting for it, being articulate on it, and then managing to mobilise large numbers of people who are willing to defend your vision, the idea that we can win from the left anymore simply by being a lighter shade of what the right is, does not work. It's been proven now conclusively uh, in elections in in Europe. Uh, And I think what happened with Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party uh, is clear. They didn't end up, of course, with the highest share of vote, but we now know the polls after the election make very clear uh, Jeremy Corbyn in the latest poll in the Labor, and his Labour Party are leading by six points over the Tories, the first poll after the election, uh, because the whole pendulum of British politics has swung in the other direction, and it's swung that way only because people were willing to outline a socialist vision to get pummeled for doing it for two years, but to stand by it and then to really win people over to it in the course of an election.
0: Yeah, so you've come on our podcast before to talk about all of these battles within the Labour Party. Um, for those people who didn't maybe listen to those or don't remember, give us a little bit of background on the last couple of years and all of these fights.
3: Yeah, well, so Jeremy Corbyn won the leadership of the Labour Party in September 2015. It was really unexpected. He didn't even expect to win it. He would put himself forward as a candidate of the left just so the left could get a vote to show that it was still a kind of present uh, in the Labour Party. And then in the aftermath of the electoral loss in 2015, a huge number of people were motivated to try to do something differently. They were not willing to accept what was the narrative of why Labour had lost in 2015, which was pushed really hard by the centre and right wing of the party, which was to say we lost because Ed Miliband was too far to the left. And the only way to get back is for us to put in place some kind of centrist political leader. And Corbyn's camp were not willing uh, to accept that logic and just as well. Um, So huge numbers of people, particularly young people, flocked to his campaign um, and propelled him to the leadership of the Labour Party. Um, That then saw the first avalanche of members into the party, and the Labour Party grew into being a a party of about 400,000. But then from the beginning, Jeremy Corbyn was undermined from within his own party, um, and from outside, from the mainstream press, with a historically uh, negative campaign, there really hasn't been anything like it against a major political leader in British history. Uh, and then also from parts of the state. I mean, very quickly uh, after he had won, there were generals, um, former generals from the British Army, on the uh, on BBC News saying that uh, there could be a mutiny if uh, if Jeremy Corbyn tried to implement his pro peace foreign policy. So there was obvious, very, very deep uh, reaction against uh, what he was proposing. That went on for quite some time. There were, you know, uh, leaks daily within the Labour Party. The party uh, full-time staff tried to undermine him. The Most of the parliamentary Labour Party just outright disrespected him as leader, were engaged in a constant campaign of sabotage. Uh, and that then culminated um, after the Brexit referendum. So in summer of 2016, there was the referendum on leaving the European Union. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn argued against Brexit and campaigned. Uh, but within a couple of hours of the vote's result coming through, it was clear that there was going to be a coup against his leadership in the in the Labour Party. People were blaming him for the fact that Britain had voted that way, which was ludicrous because the same number of Labour supporters had voted to remain as the SNP supporters. Um, but there was a coup uh, against his leadership. Uh, an attempt to overthrow him, which was rejected by the membership. There was a campaign within the Labour Party to try to exclude as many people as possible. There was you know, purges of Labour Party members, and there was really an attempt to stitch the whole thing up by the right of the party, but they failed. And in the course of that campaign, the party membership exploded again, up over half a million, which makes it the largest social democratic party in, in, uh, in Europe at the moment. Um. And uh, Jeremy Corbyn ended up winning that uh, quite comfortably, uh, 62-38% against a centrist challenger called Owen Smith. But that didn't make a difference in terms of uh, the attempt to sabotage him. There was still constant uh, sabotage campaigns going against him. And mainly it would take the form of um, people briefing against him. So people in his his own shadow cabinet uh, briefing against him or people on the Labour backbenches briefing against him to the press and this constant kind of uh, flow of negative news stories about his leadership and an attempt to undermine uh, him as a figure and his his politics. Um, it also took the form of people who were full-time staff in the Labour Party working in a place called Southside, uh, simply not doing the job that they would be expected to do for a leader of their party. Uh, so they were leaking information to the press. They were uh, working almost kind of ghost lows. Um, to stop the Labour Party from being able to implement its program. Uh, They were not working with the people hired uh, to Corbyn's office uh, in any kind of productive way. Um, So there was a constant uh, undermining still, despite the fact that he had won this vindication inside the party. And all of it was based on the logic that he could never win. He was unelectable and his poll numbers nationally were really bad. And look, they were bad all the way up until the campaign because... He did not have a space to actually fight and articulate with people what his politics were in an arena where people were turned on to what was happening politically. This is what the campaign offered. The campaign offered um, a platform for Jeremy Corbyn to come forward, make his case where he was strong, mobilizing large numbers of members out in communities, going to big rallies, taking Theresa May uh, on in uh, in in the press, There was an enforced kind of uh, moderation, so there's uh, certain standards that apply to the broadcast media in times of the elections, which don't apply outside of that, and that undoubtedly helped them as well as a kind of moderating force on their constant negative coverage. Um, But mostly what it was uh, that turned things around here was that there was an opportunity here for him to uh, go forward and present his politics when people were listening, to do it in a way that showed that he was far more interested in the concerns of ordinary people in Britain than the Tories were, that he was far more willing to challenge the same kind of structures that are leading to stagnant wages, declining living standards, the falling apart of the health system, the education system, the lack of prospects for young people, that he was more willing to challenge against the real problems that were affecting people's lives than the Tories were. And when you do that, and you do it in a, in a clear way, and it's not so filtered by a hostile media uh, during a time of a campaign, well, then people see it and they respond. So it's
0: sort of interesting. I spoke with Paul Mason before the election, and he was kind of saying something that a lot of people have said, which is that Scotland was gone for for Labour, that the best hope was that the SNP and Labour could go into some sort of coalition. But the SNP lost seats everywhere. They lost seats to the Tories, they lost seats to Labour, they lost seats to Liberal Democrats. I mean, what happened in Scotland? And Mm. could Labour potentially pick up some of the traditional base that it used to have there in the future?
3: So yeah, it was a disastrous election for the SNP. One thing we should say about this is that their last election was historically good. And so this is still the second best ever election for the SNP. But they lost a lot of seats. And they did so, I think, because the dynamic of independence campaign has really slowed down. Um, it's not clear to people what's going to happen there. Uh, the Tory government has rejected the prospect of another referendum. The SNP have not gone forward and made clear when they are going, when they would plan to do a referendum, or even if they would within any kind of short or medium term sense, because they've been scared off by their own poll numbers, which show that things are not so different from the last time when they lost the independence referendum. And we should be honest as well that the SNP have tacked to the centre now that they are, you know, the party of government in Scotland and now that they had the overwhelming majority of the seats, uh, they had a choice. Either they were going to pick up the more radical uh, energies of the independence campaign and argue for independence as a kind of re-foundation of Scottish society and a fundamental break with the past, or they were going to take a different line, which they, they ended up taking under Nicola Sturgeon which is to say that we are a kind of safe pair of hands in the post-Brexit uh, situation. Yes, we are kind of soft left in our, in our policy platform, but we're not going to propose anything too radically different from what is there today. Um, that We're going to spend a lot of our time trying to assuage the concerns of kind of middle-of-the-way voters and so on. And that's the politics that they've taken up, and they paid a, a price for it, in my view. Uh, if they had gone hard from the from the left and made a case that independence could improve the lives uh, of huge numbers of people in Scotland and that they were proposing a radical break with what was there under the, um, the United Kingdom, I think they would have been in a better position. But they haven't. They've moderated their message. It's been very clear to anyone who's seen it. Now, the question on the other hand is what do these seat losses mean? The seat losses to the Tories mean that the independence dynamic has uh, created a kind of conservative unionist voter where previously they didn't exist. So the Tories picking up seats in Scotland, they're really picking up seats of people who are very anti-independence um, and who, you know, in their defence of the British state and all of its various vestiges, uh, have moved to right-wing politics because that kind of British nationalism does tend towards right-wing politics. And there's no question uh, in my mind that that's going to be a, a negative factor Uh, They did have a leader who was kind of a more like a liberal Tory, Ruth Davidson, um, who presented the party a little bit differently up there than they were presented in the South. But still, it was a kind of reactionary uh, unionist vote. And the Labour Party came through with a few seats, but they only increased their number of votes in Scotland, 10,000 from 2015. And the reality is the Scottish Labour Party is still governed by a Blairite uh, and by Blairite politics. They did not run on Corbyn's platform. And I think if they had, they would have done a hell of a lot better. What they ended up doing is trying to play a soft unionist campaign, uh, in a number of cases, giving almost a wink that people should vote for the the Tories in some seats to keep the SNP out. So, the same kind of politics that motivated Better Together, um, which was the campaign against Scottish independence the first time, which had been such a disaster for Labour. Um, Mm -hmm. And they didn't manage to to have the result that the rest, you know, that Labour did in the rest of the country, nowhere close. They didn't make the comeback. And that they should have they picked up a number of seats partly because of the SNP's decline partly because people voted for Corbyn's program even though scottish labor weren't uh, articulating it but i think the truth is that they're a long way off coming back in scotland still they could do that if they adopted a more Corbynite position some of the mps they've elected up there are excellent are very left wing but they're going to have to fight to take back control of that party because ultimately It's still animated by the same politics that led to its decline in the post-independence scenario.
1: Well, Brexit might not have been a huge focus um, per se. Um, I think that the underlying anxieties regarding globalization and just a sense of alienation um, in a huge part of the country, um, both socioeconomically as well as culturally, in a sense, um, were very much factors at play. So I'm just wondering, was there anything... Particular um, in the way that Corbyn presented the platform, that was able to thread that needle, and that managed to kind of stitch together these different parts.
3: Sure, I think it was um, it was a really difficult task for Corbyn. I mean, to put it uh, out there quite bluntly, there are parts of Labour's heartland uh, in London, for instance, and but in a lot of the big cities that voted seventy, eighty percent for Remain and saw Brexit as a nightmare. Or really strongly opposed to it, and there are parts of Labour's heartlands in the northeast, parts of the northwest, parts of the Midlands that voted seventy percent for Brexit and saw Brexit as uh, taking their country back, and were very supportive of it. So keeping that coalition together, as Jeremy Corbyn managed to do, is was incredible feat. I mean, this is what what has been achieved in this campaign. We'll be talking about for a very very long time. uh, Provided it's not superseded by events that could, you know, uh, of the collapse of this government or something over the next couple of months, I think it's going to be analyzed for a long time because it was a really difficult thing to do. My view on how they did it is that, yes, they changed the conversation from uh, Brexit as this kind of abstract discussion into actually what kind of society are we looking for? So if you had asked those Labour Party supporters who backed Brexit, were you backing a program that dismantles the NHS, that cuts wages, that means declining living standards and more money going to the rich, they would have said no. We're not. We're backing a different kind of program. We're, we're looking to see uh, us taking our country back and a kind of probably a kind of nostalgic view of where Britain was with the welfare state uh, back into the 90s, the 80s, 70s, and so on. That w- was the kind of uh, feeling that people had about what taking our country back uh, meant—a little, you know, more control back to a time when, for instance, if you were living in uh, northeast England, you had. A job that was fairly stable, you were probably in a union. If something went wrong, you had some control over your life there. You had somebody from the same class background as you and the local council. If something went wrong, they would be more responsive to your needs. That you had some kind of strong, organized political force that could intervene to give you some power in your community over your prospects moving forward. I mean, That was the kind of taking back control that most of the Labour Brexit voters would have wanted. On the other hand, of course, you had people who were really militantly opposed, particularly in the big cities, to Brexit. Uh, and these, what the kind of concerns there were, particularly, was that uh, Britain was moving uh, on this kind of unstoppable uh, trajectory towards a more xenophobic nationalist politics, that it was breaking away from Europe and moving towards a little England kind of perspective that would be very insular and that would be culturally quite reactionary and so on. But it's very important, you know, when we get into these cultural debates, to remember that things underlie the development of culture. People's lived conditions underlie that culture. And in this case, there were things, and there still are, that unite both of those constituencies. What Labour put forward in their manifesto, which was the key moment, the decisive moment in turning this election, was a program to put security back into people's lives. It was a program that was going to increase the minimum wage. It was going to scrap zero-hour contracts, scrap unpaid internships. It was going to renationalize the National Health Service and take crucial utilities like energy, for instance, back into public ownership and stop people from having this extremely high cost of living. It was going to tackle sky-high rents with caps I mean, it was a program that was about putting security back into working people's lives. And insecurity is a theme that unites uh, young, culturally liberal, cosmopolitan, metropolitan people who voted strongly to remain and more middle-aged people in the northeast of England who don't have that cultural uh, perspective but who are working in jobs with declining living standards and declining wages are finding it more and more difficult to get on the housing ladder if they are to afford their mortgage are dealing with the reality, particularly outside of the big cities in these kind of middle bracket uh, cities and or large towns of really you know, massively declining standards in their health service. And that kind of insecurity is a generalized condition that affects both of those constituencies. And so if you can move the conversation away from kind of culture wars and away from Brexit as an abstract idea and towards a program that talks about actually changing people's lived conditions, that changes people's realities, where they work, where they live, where their kids go to school, where they go to the hospital when something goes wrong, well, then you can shift the debate, uh, and you can shift the kind of alliances that you can build. The problem is, for Jeremy Corbyn moving forward, if at some future point he ends up in government, that Brexit is still a phenomenon that has to be worked out. You still have to come up with a solution of what you're going to do with it. And this kind of politics that Corbyn has built his coalition on, uh, I think is quite durable. I think there's a lot of uh, energy uh, around it. I think there's a real potential to expand it. But I also know that it's going to come up against real difficulties if a Labour government is in power negotiating uh, negotiating Brexit, because the reality is that people still have those strong beliefs on either side of that question, and also that it's going to be really difficult to imagine how a Brexit can be negotiated, uh, which will make it easier for uh, working people in Britain, it is possible. I believe it is possible to do this. Um, there are kind of old left-wing arguments about, uh, so people like Tony Benn would have made about you know being able outside the European Union to more easily take control of national industries, to more easily control investment and so on. But it's a very difficult path to 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 walk today. So uh, that's the challenge moving forward. But. In this election, they managed to bring together a coalition that even people like me would have said beforehand was very, very difficult to do.
1: And in terms of moving forward, I mean, to be fair, like, you know, Corbyn had been pretty consistent in his sort of leftist critique of Brexit from the beginning. But what about on an issue like free movement, you know, where you actually have like real people, you know, i.e. immigrants who are actually, you know, within the British polity right now, um, whether or not they can actually vote. These are issues and, and people with rights that need to be dealt with up front. I mean, now that the forces of Brexit have been unleashed from all sides of the political spectrum, how is he going to, you know, put it back in the bottle, I guess?
3: Well, there's an open debate um, going on at the moment about this question of, of free movement. And, um, and Corbyn's position, a lot of people on the left disagreed with it going into the election. Within the context of Brexit, it was probably a good a position in that regard as as uh, could have been put forward. But what basically what he was uh, what he was saying was that it, large companies who uh, are hiring people who are coming into to Britain are going to have to have collective bargaining agreements. So it was a, it was a kind of moving around uh, the uh, totally free movement or, or not free movement question into well, what kind of uh, positions are people going to be in as workers when they move into the country? So it was moving uh, towards arguments that say, well, what we need to do is prevent undercutting, prevent people being exploited in extraordinary fashions because they're migrant workers and so on. And so it was taking a trade union-based approach to the question of migration, that what we're going to do is insist that larger companies have to have collective bargaining agreements in place in order for things to be better for migrant workers and also better for uh, communities where, for instance, major companies, multinational corporations in Britain um, have been engaging in undercutting. Uh, I don't think it's a perfect response, but it was one that, again, managed to hold the coalition together. It was not; a, it was a, like a very clear uh, defence of migrants' rights, and he did this numerous times during the campaign, Uh, particularly saying that anyone from an EU country who was already in Britain would have their rights uh, to stay without any question. Um, Obviously, he's also, as a Labour leader, gone to Calais, um, where there was that terrible uh, migrant camp um, that the French government had uh, put in place, people living in really awful conditions um, and defending refugees' rights. Uh, So he has taken very public uh, anti-racist stands. But within the context of this election, he came up with an answer, which was a kind of trade union based approach to it. And it'll be interesting to see how that develops moving forward. I think he managed to uh, bring together uh, sufficiently a coalition on that question, which prevented immigration being uh, a key issue in this election, which was quite remarkable because all of us expected uh, immigration to be um, a a kind of centerpiece of the of the campaign. um, And that was headed off.
0: Speaking of that, let's talk a little bit about the role of organized labor. Unions did back Corbyn when other people did not. But one of the articles that I read at Salvage sort of noted that the Corbyn campaign and the Corbyn success was a resurgence of class politics that didn't come along with a resurgence in organized labor.
3: Yeah, so this is a, this is the difficult question, I think, today, which is well, what do um, trade unions do with the reality that... There hasn't been a kind of resurgence in organized labor or in, in struggles to, to a great degree during the last few years. Do you simply accept that terrain and say, we're going to move further to the right? We don't believe that, you know, working people are interested in uh, fighting back. Or do you come up with strategies that try to uh, move around the obstacles that are there? And they're very real obstacles, by the way. You know the kind of atomization of the workforce, the prevalence of zero-hour contracts, um, the huge turnover kind of churn of workers that goes on, particularly amongst young workers. That means it's very difficult to hold people into unionized positions. I mean, the, the changing landscape of work does make it very difficult for trade unions. And I don't think those of us on the left should be, you know, hammering them for finding that new uh, terrain difficult. Uh, But obviously there's a lot that still uh, should be done Um, and that hasn't been done by uh, the trade unions to look at their own uh, policies in terms of improving, organising and building worker power. Uh, But in supporting uh, Corbyn, it's very clear that trade unions have opened up a whole new avenue uh, for political trade unionism, which is potentially going to be very beneficial moving forward. Corbyn and Macdonald have proposed sweeping new pro-trade union laws, uh, including compulsory uh, negotiations of collective bargaining with larger corporations, uh, by contrast to the Tories who are passing a trade union bill that was going to decimate the uh, organising capacity of trade unions uh, in Britain. Um, mm-hmm. They proposed extending workers' rights to uh, areas like, for instance, for the, the self-employed, um, so they've moved the whole conversation of trade unionism into a more uh, into an area that's going to make it easier for unions to organise and to fight into the future. They pledge to ban zero hour contracts and ban unpaid uh, internships. Um, there's a they pledge to increase uh, the minimum wage. All of these things are going to make it easier for trade unions to organise moving forward, and that that's a real vindication of trade unions backing left wing politics it shouldn't become a substitution for them uh, organizing themselves and moving into a a space where they can uh, take advantage of the uh, real need for um, workplace organizations to improve people's living standards today. But. It's It's quite clear um, to if you look at this context where Corbyn was backed by major unions, uh, Unite being one of them, but you know huge numbers of unions, the communication workers, the bakers, the firemen, the huge numbers of unions were reliably uh, supportive of Corbyn during his entire period. Um, if he now gets into government as prime minister, they're going to find it easier on day one to organize and to win fights because of the political stance they've taken.
0: So I wanted to dig a little bit deeper into the platform. You wrote about um, one of the parts that you saw as the sort of most radical, the most forward-looking. I'd love for you to talk about that a little bit more.
3: Well, for me, the thing that's most radical about Corbyn's uh, manifesto is, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's the it's decommodification. I know this is a word that um, isn't really out there in, in, in politics at the moment, but what it means is this. That Corbyn's manifesto uh, takes the most radical part of social democracy, which was the idea that you make things universal, public, and free at the point of access. That you effectively take key parts of people's lives out of the market and you change fundamentally their relationship to them. So you do this with healthcare, you do this with uh, energy. Uh, you do this with the nationalizations of public transport and so on. That's the kind of more radical aspect of social democracy. What Corbyn was doing um, was doing this in areas like childcare, So provision of free childcare, care um, the provision of free uh, university with the scrapping of tuition, um, the National Education Service, which was going to remove huge ranges of, of fees people had to pay uh, in education. He was renationalizing the health service, which was going to really change uh, the way people in Britain interacted with the NHS, which is such a fantastic thing, this big and uh, successful public uh, health service, but which successive governments, not only the Tories but the Blairites, uh, had been chipping away at for a long, long time introducing privatisations, introducing new fees that made it more and more difficult for people to to access it. Uh, He was going to change that. And he was also going to um, fight in the workplace to change things as well. So if you think of the what, what the impact is, for instance, of um, the basic kind of floor of workplace rights he was going to impose, they were going to mean that people did not have to spend so much of their time uh, in work. It was going to mean that people had more money uh, at, at, at the end of the week, which meant that the whole pressure uh, on them to constantly give more concessions in the workplace to their boss, to constantly work longer hours with less guarantees, and so on, was going to be changed. So it was a, a tipping of of class power back uh, away from capital and, and to labour. Um, and in that sense, he was picking up the most radical aspects of uh, of social democracy, and um, the ones that, even though they weren't, uh, you know, moving towards a, a point of um, of uh, uh, socialist um, reform just at that moment, they were opening doors that could very easily move down that direction. And in addition, one of the other things that they did is they produced a document um, during the course of this campaign which talked about uh, alternative uh, kind of forms of ownership, uh, which is really quite radical. So, what the, manif- the doors to the manifesto opened around nationalizing things, making them public, free at the point of access, universal was then to be taken a further step. So they produced an exploratory document um, which outlined different ways other than private ownership that key parts of the economy could be owned. Um, There was nationalization, but nationalization was not to be left there. It was made clear in the document that this was insufficient and that actually people who worked uh, in the nationalized sections of the economy should have power over their workplaces uh, and that you would have to democratise as well as take things into public ownership. There was talks about cooperatives, there was talk about uh, municipal and community-based uh, ownership. So, really, huge numbers of questions about the fundamental architecture of the economy were being thrown open by Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party uh, with this manifesto and with the ideas they were introducing along with it. So, it was, you know to be understood that the manifesto that was being put on the table, if it was achieved with the power of a massive movement behind it, which we saw on the streets of huge parts of of Britain, with a mass membership party, with active campaigning and mass rallies and so on, that this shouldn't be the end. You go in, you win a manifesto, you fight along with the movement to uh, introduce it, and then you say, well, this is only the start. Actually, we need a fundamental change of the way this economy uh, is is structured in the way in which power and wealth are distributed uh, and that we can continue this fight moving forward. So it was putting things on the horizon that are really valuable, they are going to be remembered by people and fought for real alternatives that now seem possible that didn't only a few weeks ago. Uh, that ch- will change politics in Britain for a very long time
1: in the uh, post-election kind of digesting of the exit polls, youth was a huge factor and and in many ways an underestimated one. Are there any particular strands of the campaign tactics or strategies that they used here to really bring out the youth vote?
3: Well, it's worth saying that in Britain, uh, this young generation, if you look statistically, is the worst set of any generation going back 100 years. It's going to be the first generation to have worse living standards than their parents Uh, there's been a massive decline in wages there's been a massive decline in workplace security people are a long way from being able I mean just you know the, the prospect of being able to buy a house and so on has moved so far into the distance for so many people that it very often seems like this kind of endless work with very little to hope for and aspire for at the end of it and then there was also the lumping of these enormous, uh, well, what seem in European terms, enormous student debts, so by far the highest in Europe, uh, onto their shoulders by the coalition conservative liberal democrat government. And so there was a material reason why young people were interested in left-wing politics, and we should say it's the same kind of material factors that bring young people out to vote for Bernie Sanders in the US, to vote for Mélenchon in France, to vote for Podemos in Spain, there are common factors uh, that relate to people's living conditions and their prospects in life that are motivating youth support for left-wing politicians across the Western world particularly. Uh, and Corbyn's campaign managed to pick up on those. Obviously, there were specific aspects of his programme which appealed to people, banning zero-hour contracts, unpaid internships, scrapping tuition fees, uh, making it easier for people to rent by imposing rent caps. I mean, there was huge numbers of things that would have improved the conditions of of young people. But, you know, it would have improved them as workers. It would have improved the conditions of everyone who is in those conditions. It wasn't just aiming at young people as young people. It was recognising that today young people are disproportionately in disadvantaged positions in the economy and are working longer hours, for less pay, and will benefit from a left-wing program. And so people responded to that. But there's also the cultural thing, um, which is that young people did respond very, very strongly to the idea that somebody was in politics who has had the same principles throughout their entire political career, was not out of, uh, in politics to make money or out of some kind of ego-driven crusade, uh, but who genuinely seemed to be in it because of the principles that they believed in and had held even when they were unpopular, that they were going to take on major projects like trying to fight back against uh, the kind of drive to war that we get so often in the West and to stand up for real humanitarian foreign policy. Uh, That kind of stuff did resonate with people. In addition, has to be said to the concrete work of organizing a a narrative that would appeal to young people that was done by different groups. Momentum, the very kind of youth-focused Corbynite wing of the Labour Party, produced excellent videos breaking down uh, his policies into everyday scenarios, like, say, for example, they produced one of a pub owner and what it would mean uh, to embrace austerity or uh, to pursue more left-wing policies. Produced ones in workplaces, and what would the difference be under a Corbyn government if you were working in these various places? Um, They ran a really effective uh, online social media campaign uh, with a lot of viral content that was widely shared. Uh, There was also, uh, I think, an awful lot of kind of spontaneous um, youth involvement through things like the cultural scene, there was the Grime for Corbyn campaign, so the most vibrant and dynamic music scene in Britain, um, which is kind of like British rap music, Grime. Um, The leading figures of that came out overwhelmingly for Corbyn. They're young people uh, uh, based in the big cities, uh, and a lot of them from ethnic minority backgrounds, um, who would have cited things like Corbyn's really strong and consistent anti-racist politics in Britain, his support for anti-apartheid um, campaigning in uh, in South Africa, his support, consistent support for the Palestinian cause, as uh, reasons why they uh, why they backed him as well. So there were a number of reasons, but I'm one of those people who says underlying all of those is people's live conditions. You know, if you uh, are facing a reality of declining living standards, with prospects becoming more bleak for you moving forward in your life if the aspirations you had for what you were going to do seem to be more and more encroached upon by uh, really difficult workplace environments, by uh, difficulties in accessing basic services, uh, by not having enough money at the end of the month, well, then you're more likely to vote for a programme that is trying to take those things on, is trying to really challenge the social ills that we face. And that's what Corbyn offered. And he did it in an unapologetic way from the left, It should be a lesson to all of us internationally that if you fight for things that will really improve people's lives, they will respond. People, you know, there's this kind of um, very elitist attitude to politics that is put forward by lots of parts of the mainstream press that takes a kind of miserable view of society and people's response and thinks that people only respond to political programs based on some kind of Uh, reactionary instincts that they have, um, and that populism is something that is, you know, destined to end up on the right with figures like Donald Trump. Well, it's not. Uh, You guys know in the States that it's not because you saw the outcome of the the Bernie Sanders campaign, the incredible come-from-behind campaign that he ran. And now in Britain, in even more difficult environments, with the entire media relentlessly against him, with most of his own party against him, with nobody believing that he could do it, putting forward a clear socialist message, managed to get 40% of the vote uh, and basically double um, the share of the vote over just a six-week campaign. Imagine what it can do over the next year or two years.
0: So, Ronan, you're Irish. Um, (laughs) And uh, so Theresa May's lack of a majority here means that she is relying on the support of the Democratic Unionist Party of Northern Ireland. Um, It seems like even the British media doesn't really know who they are, um, the American media really doesn't know. Tell us who they are. Tell us why they're scary um, and why people are, are literally protesting that Theresa May cannot go into partnership with these people.
3: Yeah, so the DUP, uh, I mean, they're really a throwback. Um, they would be quite similar to kind of Pat Robertson School of Thinking in the, in the U.S., um, a reactionary party, which is really anti-LGBT rights, really anti-women's rights, opposes abortion, um, which are uh, you know, very strongly socially conservative with a Bible-bashing tint to it, don't believe in, um, for, for an awful lot of their uh, members of Parliament, don't believe in evolution and um, kind of uh, are very, very strong about trying to impose religious doctrine at the educational level and across society. Um, And obviously they represent a particular community uh, in the north of Ireland. Um, So they are the party of Ian Paisley. It was not always the case that they were the party of the unionist community in Northern Ireland, but as the peace process has gone on, and um, they became that party. They've taken over the space of the UUP, the Austria Unionist Party, and are now the dominant force in, uh, in unionist politics in the north. Um, and they echo the worst parts of, of that tradition. There are lots of different parts of that tradition, but the worst parts of them, the ones that are kind of most uh, supremacist, that are kind of most nationalist, um, that had the most bigoted views of, of Catholics, um, of people uh, in in the north who were uh, not part of of, of that uh, community, um, and so there being you know a presence in this government, and it looks like there'll be some kind of deal negotiated, uh, probably a minority government with with support um, a, a, as it goes, a kind of um, exchange deal with the uh, with the Tories. Uh, That would be a difficulty for Theresa May, because they are wildly out of step with majority British opinion. I mean, whatever has been said about Britain and British people um, in the wake of the Brexit vote, people should remember that Britain is a society that has become much more progressive in its social attitudes. um, That is quite a different place um, from the one where the Tories in the 60s, for instance, were able to run... um, Really vile uh, anti-immigrant campaigns on a mass scale. They still do it. They still do it about refugees. They still do it. Um, Theresa May herself had these kind of anti-immigrant bans going around. But there were times when mainstream right-wing British politics um, were was you know aligned to extremely racist uh, um, politics and views in a way that it it is less so, uh, far less so now and British society as a whole is a lot more socially progressive than it would have been. So they will be way out of step with British public opinion, Um, and they will be a weakness continuously for uh, Theresa May. But it it reflects where the Tories are going, which is that as a right-wing political party, they are moving into a space uh, which is increasingly reactionary. This was clear in the period after Brexit, when Theresa May made, you know, speeches talking about how uh, extremely nationalist speeches for Western European politics, talking about how, you know, uh, if, if you are not proudly British, you're going to be a citizen of nowhere. Um, and talking about the kind of, uh, obviously she talked about people who are opposing a hard Brexit as saboteurs. Um, that kind of politics is obviously going to continue with the DUP. They have... Uh, a particularly right-wing agenda. Uh, they, you know, their leading figures have said particularly nasty things. It was a very prominent one um, not so long ago, where uh, Peter Robinson, when he was still leader of the DUP uh, a couple of years ago, uh, made a very famous comment about not being willing to trust uh, Muslims uh, in in Northern Ireland. And then when he was pushed on it, he said, "Well, he might trust them to go to the shop for him, but you know, nothing beyond that." It's kind of really demeaning racist stuff. Um, and they're now going to have a very important role to play in the in the coming government. Um, they particularly hate Jeremy Corbyn because he consistently supported social justice and civil rights in Northern Ireland uh, because he had been a reliable uh, friend of Irish people in Britain when uh, things were very difficult during the Troubles. He backed the Birmingham Six and the Guildford Four campaigns when they were Uh, unjustly imprisoned Um, and of course he has a relationship with Sinn Féin um, which goes back to the time when uh, people in mainstream British politics were unwilling uh, to negotiate uh, and to try to move towards a peaceful settlement in Northern Ireland and Jeremy Corbyn was willing to do that and he was right before time but uh, the DUP uh, will remember that, they will remember those positions that he had taken. And they will be particularly opposed to Jeremy Corbyn um, as a potential leader. So they will row in behind the Conservatives. They'll do it quite consistently and they'll try where they can to move the Tories to the right and also to embed their own power in the peace process in Northern Ireland. So this is where it'll get particularly dangerous in terms of what's happening in the six counties um, which is that the British government under the Good Friday Agreement has this role which, you know, we can debate how much it really plays, but it, it It's supposed to at least um, act as a kind of uh, arbiter along with the Irish government of the 26 counties, uh, particularly when there are difficulties about forming governments, um, which there is at the moment. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Northern Irish Assembly is not functioning at the moment. Um, And how is the British government going to do that when it is in partnership with one part of the political forces in the six counties? It'll find it increasingly difficult to do that. Um, the DUP are going to try to use this opportunity to embed their own politics to uh, impede the, you know, political power of uh, nationalist community in the north. This is a political party which only a few months ago was running kind of caricature anti-Irish campaigns uh, in in the uh, six counties um, against the Irish language and so on. So for them to be at the heart of government. I mean, it's a serious question um, uh, for Ireland. It's a serious question for Britain. uh, But I do believe on the other side of that, to look at things more optimistically, I think we should look at this as a narrowing of right wing power, that they have to rely on these kind of antiquated backward reactionary forces because they can no longer aspire towards the kind of broad social coalition that they believe they could go into this election where they believed they could win over huge proportions of working-class Labour voters to the Tories' really narrow nationalist vision, and they couldn't. And working-class people across Britain who were so derided by the mainstream press, who were all told were going to end up coming out in their swathes for this kind of agenda, did not, and large numbers of them ended up instead coming out and voting for a socialist politician, for a socialist party, and for a socialist future
0: even after they were told he was uh, an IRA supporter.
3: Oh, yeah. No, I mean, it's incredible because, I mean, during this campaign, as I was saying earlier, there were two really egregious terrorist attacks. And I have to say, as somebody who was observing it, I had a feeling in my gut that this was going to be difficult, not because I had negative views of the British people and how they would respond to these things, but because I did feel that people would become afraid. And that Corbyn's campaign was motivated by hope And that it would be difficult to make people feel that, having seen the atrocities in Manchester and in London, that they were so vicious, that they were so inhuman, that it would be hard to make people feel that kind of aspiration, um, given those contexts. But they did. They actually responded the other way, which was people responded by saying, you know, we're sick of this. We're sick of this kind of uh, threat. We're Really do believe that what Jeremy Corbyn said about our wars having given a huge amount of space to groups like the Islamic State to grow is accurate. We see that Theresa May, as Home Secretary, cut the numbers of police uh, in a way that did, particularly in regards to community policing, make it very very difficult for emergency services to respond to the, to these kind of uh, to these kind of threats. And I think more than that. People responded uh, by refusing to be kind of bowed by that and by Theresa May's response kind of talking about, you know, uh, shutting down parts of the Internet and introducing, you know, cutting the the waiting times and so on for um, the the, the limitations to people being detained. And all of this kind of authoritarian war on terror rhetoric that we have heard since 2001, 2003, and Mm. it hasn't made damn thing better. And people responded against that and said, no, actually, we don't believe anymore that this is a solution to the problem. We don't believe that just more authoritarianism at home and more war abroad is going to uh, to solve this. We're willing to listen to Jeremy Corbyn uh, giving us an alternative. Uh, and that was really, really encouraging because, no, you know, no more should people on the left simply believe that when a terrorist attack happens, that we have to get off the pitch and you know our politics is no longer relevant because we can't talk about security questions and so on. No, we can. Jeremy Corbyn gave a really compelling narrative about how this could be challenged with a progressive vision in society that talked about trying to prevent social isolation, talked about trying to rebuild civil society, the institutions which had in previous generations pulled communities together that tried to prevent uh, growing Islamophobic uh, sentiments from driving people uh, to uh, into kind of uh, reactionary uh, responses. Uh, he talked about a really progressive way of dealing with the threat of terrorism uh, and also obviously uh, stopping the interventions abroad, which caused so much suffering and produced so little by way of better societies for people in the Middle East. Uh, and we shouldn't anymore roll up into a ball in these contexts and, and, you know, uh, simply accept that they're the terrain of the right for them to bludgeon us with nationalist and authoritarian answers. We should get out and say clearly that there are socialist answers to the problems of terrorism and that they involve stopping foreign wars, they involve challenging uh, things like Islamophobia at home, and they involve building better societies that prevent particularly young men from... uh, disadvantaged communities from ending up in these kind of situations uh, with the, you know, the responding to the kind of reactionary politics of groups like uh, Islamic State.
0: So to wrap up, what happens next? Um, Theresa May's government is definitely not strong and stable. So what is the path
3: forward? Well, I think what's going to happen first is we're, we're going to have to see within the coming weeks what this government shapes up like. There will be a conservative-led government uh, with the uh, help of the DUP. Uh, it is likely to be a government that tries to move ahead with Brexit negotiations, of course, because that's what's on the table immediately and not one that seems likely to move away from their hard Brexit vision, which is a kind of bargain basement Britain where uh, workers' rights are cut away, where living standards continue to fall. More power is transferred than ever before into the hands of uh, corporations. Um, So they're going to try and push that vision through, but now against them, for the first time in quite some time, there's a viable uh, alternative that people responded to in large numbers that offers an alternative path uh, towards socialist politics and a socialist future. And it's one that's in the ascendancy. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn I think it's it's quite clear that the kind of support he's enjoying at the moment from across the Labour Party won't continue, um, because people <laughs> fundamentally in the Labour Party, a lot of people in the centre and the right of that party just don't agree with his politics. Um, but right now, for the moment, he's in a very strong position, and he's going to be trying to undermine the Tories uh, and their ability to move forward with this with this government. And he's doing it on the basis of a a manifesto of policies that are really popular across the country. Every Almost every single big-ticket item in his manifesto when it was polled uh, had majority support amongst the British population. So he's in a strong position, but it raises real questions. First of all, how much can he rely on this Labour Party? You know, Is it going to move forward and get behind the left-wing leader, or are we going once again to see continuous leaks and sabotage and undermining... What will the media's response be? All these pundits who are paid a lot of money to get politics wrong all the time, are they going to have some humble pie and form a kind of new perspective on what's possible in politics and what's worth fighting for? Or are they going to go back to this kind of uh, derision that they treated the Corbyn Project with for so long? Uh, and, And also, can his movement develop? These huge numbers of particularly young people who are mobilising the campaign. Can they be organised into momentum and into the Labour Party? Can they find a way to keep democracy going outside of the windows of elections? Because for those of us on the left, it isn't enough for democracy in these kind of surges to only matter once every few years when, you know, elections are called from upon high. We actually have to be able to build power in the periods in between, which means that the Labour Party is going to have to take seriously its role as a channel for popular democracy, for anger against the Tory government, and for empowerment of the majority against the elite interests represented by people like Theresa May. It's going to have to take seriously the fight at a local community level against every cut. It's going to have to try to step in with radical alternatives, things like uh, providing services Uh, where they are needed, or support for services where they are needed, um, which can be done at at, at local levels. Um, The Labour Party should be doing that. There's no reason why it shouldn't be out there giving people information, for instance, about their welfare rights, which the Tories are coming for, uh, so that they don't have to rely all the time on a hostile state to tell them what they're entitled to, what they're not entitled to. The Labour Party should be out there clearly defending the politics of the majority against the few for the many against the few, as Corbyn's kind of line was, um, on a daily basis. And if they can do that, well, then we're going to see a really, really interesting period in British politics, something which, to be honest, we have not seen in a very long time. uh, And that can only be hopeful for those of us on the left.
1: And that was Ronan Burdenshaw of Jacobin Magazine talking about the results of the
0: UK election. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's
1: time for ARGH! I wish I'd written that. My pick for this episode is Stop Pretending You're Not Rich by Richard Reeves. Here, Richard Reeves takes a hard look at class in the American context... See, the weird thing about class in America is that there only seems to be one. Everyone's in the middle. Politicians talk about the eroding middle class, the loss of middle class values, restoring middle class jobs. But why, if the middle class is such a dominant force in society, is the country still one of the most unequal in the world? Why is the gap between rich and poor growing larger? Why is it becoming increasingly hard to move into the middle class, and why are more people falling out of it every day? And how can we have such a huge wealth gap if everyone strives to be in the middle? Reeves, as a Brit, puts America's lack of class consciousness in perspective by looking at rich and poor in America through the lens of British culture. The British, unlike the Americans, are under no delusions about class privilege and how it has a way of determining one's station in life, and even that of their children, before they've even entered school. No one really ascends to the upper echelons of political power in Britain, for instance, without going to all the right schools, knowing the right people, working the right ladders of the media, and basically uh, commanding a certain kind of privilege in society, and to some extent flaunting it. Reeves, who was raised in a middle-class family in Britain, a truly middle-class home, Uh, not the kind of middle class that we see touted in campaign ads here on this side of the pond, understood where he came from growing up, and he grew up with the kind of middle class values that take a hard-eyed look at class and confront it head-on to overcome the constraints of class in a very real and concrete way. I always found the class consciousness of Britain depressing, he writes. It is one of the reasons we brought our British-born sons to America. Here, class is quaint, something to observe and wonder through imported TV shows like Downton Abbey or The Crown. So imagine my horror at discovering that the United States is more calcified by class than Britain, especially toward the top. The big difference is that most of the people on the highest rung in America are in denial about their privilege. The American myth of meritocracy allows them to attribute their position to their brilliance and diligence rather than to luck or rig system. At least posh people in England have the decency to feel guilty. Well, this is a difficult needle to thread, because we don't necessarily want to buy into the reality of class, but we do want to acknowledge how it shapes our everyday lives. And we can't afford to ignore the very real impact that class has in our lives, even if it is just a social construct. See, Americans tend to overcome class by simply pretending that it doesn't exist. And in that sense, we end up invisibilizing inequality under the delusion of meritocracy, equal opportunity, being self-made, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, uh, insert cliche here. All of this is framed in language not of class solidarity, but of profound selfishness, that we somehow define our own circumstances and can determine our own lot in life all on our own. And that's the danger of the kind of classness, class politics that we engage in here in America. The idea that Americans can move freely across class boundaries and ascend by virtue of hard work up the income ladder obliterates the role of the state as well as the kinds of inequality, entrenched inequality, that shape our own life circumstances before we're even born. That has to do with race, it has to do with gender, it has to do with immigration status, it has to do with the idea that Uh, in America, we're not as in control of our economic circumstances as we like to think. While it is true that the super-rich are in many ways different from, say, the upper-middle class, or the middle-middle class, or the working class, the fact that many people who once lived comfortably at the upper end of the income scale and are now sliding closer towards poverty shouldn't obliterate the myth of class politics or classlessness here in the United States. It doesn't mean the experiences of the working poor and others living amid structural poverty are not fundamentally different from those with better resources, social networks, or educational credentials. Reeves goes on to write, Beneath a veneer of classlessness, the American class reproduction machine operates with ruthless efficiency, in particular, the upper middle class is solidifying. This favored fifth at the top of the income distribution, with an average annual household income of $200,000, has been separating from the 80% below. Collectively, this top fifth has seen $4 trillion plus increase in pre-tax income since 1979, compared to just over $3 trillion for everybody else. Some of those gains went to the top 1%, but most went to the 19% just beneath them. What we're seeing is America growing more and more unequal in a number of dimensions, and yet we are blissfully unaware of this because we don't understand where exactly we stand on the hierarchy and how static our position actually is. Reeves continues, The rhetoric of we are the 99% has in fact been dangerously self-serving, allowing people with healthy six-figure incomes to convince themselves that they are somehow in in the same economic boat as ordinary Americans. And it is just the so-called super-rich hard to blame for inequality, unquote. That's the kind of mentality that undergirds the resentment uh, that drove Donald Trump into office. And it's ultimately destroying our sense of solidarity, when in fact we should be building new kinds of solidarity uh, between and among our class peers. Instead of class obliviousness that ends up surreptitiously justifying entrenched inequality, what Americans need more is class consciousness and a sense of social justice without being constrained by classism itself. That also means unlearning our sense of entitlement and letting go of the anxiety that goes along with that. And we start to evolve out of the idea that we are completely in control of our social status and in control of our social circumstances, we start to understand that all of us rich or poor, have far less control over our own lives and that of future generations than we like to think. That's the only way that we realize where our own
0: power really lies. The piece I went with this week is an in-depth look at clothing factory work, work making Ivanka Trump's branded clothing to be exact. Krithika Varagar at The Guardian wrote a piece titled Revealed Reality of Life Working in an Ivanka Trump Clothing Factory. The factory in question is in Subang, Indonesia. The story comes a week after the report that activists investigating labor abuses in Chinese factories that also make Trump-branded clothing were disappeared or taken into police custody. Those activists had reported salaries below China's legal minimum wage, managers who verbally abuse workers, and, quote, violations of women's rights. In Indonesia, these complaints are similar and wages even lower, Varagar writes. Few of the workers are union members, many are on contract, short-term contracts, and many of them are mothers who cannot afford to live with their own children. They report frequent verbal abuse and unpaid overtime, along with unrealistic work quotas. The factories also tend to fire workers right before the holiday of Ramadan to to avoid paying the required holiday bonuses. The workers, it's worth noting, are familiar with the name on the brand that they are sewing. Farrakhar writes, quote, Many Buma workers know who Ivanka Trump is. Alia noticed her labels popping up on the clothes about a year ago. Ahmad, who also works in the local garment industry and who, like his wife and most of the workers at her PT Buma factory, is an observant Muslim, said, We don't like Donald Trump's policies. He had followed news of the so-called Muslim ban on TV this year. But we're not in a position to make employment decisions based on our principles, he said. When Alia was told the gist of Ivanka Trump's new book on women in the workplace, she burst out laughing. Her idea of work-life balance, she said, would be if she could see her children more than once a month. That is all we have time for today. Thank you, as always, for listening, and thank you to our monthly sustaining members. You too can donate to Belabored, keep us bringing you fresh, hot labor content every other week, and get your swanky belabored tote bag at the Descent Magazine website, slash belabored membership. We appreciate all your support over the last few years. You can always tweet at us at hashtag belabored if you are a labor voter or a student debtor, if you work in factories or in infrastructure, if you have a health care plan affected by the Republican bill. So, you know, that means almost everyone. You can also email us at belabored at Thank you. And we will be back in two weeks. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.